This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning. I am so excited about today. Uh, all that it is and all that it could be in our lives. Uh, it's uh, to, to be together, to come together, to, to experience God is just one of the greatest gifts that he has given us. Uh, there's something very powerful about that intimate one-on-one time that we have with God. And there's something equally as powerful about this experience. A few hundred of us gathered together to worship, to sing, to remember, uh, to greet each other, uh, to, to put our arms out and to hug each other the way that uh, if God was with us, he would be hugging us and embracing us to uh, share the ups and downs of life. It's just so, so exciting. Uh, and it's a, it's a really exciting day for me as well because second service, uh, we have a number of Sonoma State students coming over here to be with us. Uh, my wife works with a ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and it's the ministry that I worked at for six years before I came here. And they've been doing tours with all their new students for the last four weeks, and this is the last week on their church tours. And, and so I'm hoping they'll stick, that they'll plug in. Uh, and I want to invite you, if you're not doing anything, uh, between now and let's say 11:15, stick around between services. Uh, I know they can be terrifying, uh, but they're equally scared of us, so don't worry. Uh, and there are more of us than there are of them, so it's okay. Uh, I remember the students, uh, when I worked in the ministry, we'd all sit up in the front row, and uh, it was like there was a one-row barrier, you know, with all the, the grown-ups in the church. And so uh, I want to invite you, stick around between services if you aren't doing anything. Hang out in the lobby because they'll probably be here uh, a little bit before most of the regular second service people show up. And it'd be really sad if they showed up to an empty church. So stay here and greet them. And uh, just because they look young doesn't mean it's their first time. They may have been coming for years. So I uh, don't assume it's their first time, but just go up and say hi. Uh, shake their hand. Uh, and uh, it could be a really fun time. Uh, my plan is to show them a picture of myself when I went to Sonoma State, when I was a college student, and I thought maybe I should uh, give you guys the same opportunity uh, to embarrass myself. So uh, that's me back in, in college. Um, I know what you're thinking. Uh, yes, it's natural. Uh, it's gotten darker with age. Uh, but uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. For those of you who are younger than me and you're thinking, oh, he's so funny looking, give it 10 years. Uh, we'll be laughing at you too. So we did it to our parents, and we'll do it to you. Um, let's pray, and then let's jump into uh, to this morning. Uh, Spirit, would you uh, move powerfully in our lives? Would you uh, help me to get out of your way so that you can connect with us? Uh, would you speak the words uh, of truth and of life that you have uh, and that you are? Uh, would we experience uh, a new expression of your reality? And would that change us? Would that transform us? And would we know what it means to live more fully human, more fully engaged with you? Amen. There was a man who used to cross over a border uh, between two countries, and he, he would cross this border every week with a wheelbarrow. And, and he'd walk across with this wheelbarrow, and after a few weeks, the border patrol thought, there's got to be something that he's smuggling in this wheelbarrow. This guy doesn't just cross over for no particular reason. He's smuggling something. And so every time he would come, the border patrol would stop him, and they'd, they'd pick up the blanket, and they'd look inside the wheelbarrow, but they could never find anything inside the wheelbarrow. Uh, and this went on for years and years. Every week, multiple times a week, he'd cross over the border with his wheelbarrow. And then after a, a number of years passed, he stopped crossing. A number more years passed, and the border patrol uh, that was working all retired. Uh, and one of the border patrol officers walked into a pub one evening, and there was the guy 
the wheelbarrow guy. And so uh, he went up to him. He said, hey, uh, it's been a lot of years since you crossed the border, but I was on the border patrol and I'm retired now. And, and so this won't do anything. Uh, you won't get in trouble for this, but I got to know. We know you were smuggling something. We know you were. There's no reason why you cross over the border. We know you were smuggling something. What were you smuggling? And the man looked him in the eyes and he said, wheelbarrows. I was smuggling wheelbarrows. Uh, Rene Descartes once said, uh, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. And I, I wonder if that's the way we view Christianity, right? I think, therefore I am. It's what's on the inside, right? If the border patrol would have looked at him, they would have seen uh, what he is is expressed in what he's doing. What do you think he's smuggling? He's smuggling wheelbarrows. It's right in front of you. Don't look uh, to try to figure out what's on the inside. Just look at what is there, what's expressed. That is who he is. I think oftentimes our tendency is to say, well, well, what's their heart? You know, what's going on on the inside of them? As if that is the true person. And I, uh, I want to tell you what Jesus says, because Jesus has a different point of view. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, uh, and it's it's up on the screen, he says, thus by their ideas you will recognize their fruit, or you will recognize them. No, no, he says, by their fruit you recognize them, by their actions. He's talking about people who claim to be followers of God and people who aren't. True followers versus fake followers of Christ. And he, he says, by their actions you know them, you recognize them. He goes on to say, good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. And you can't get good fruit from a bad tree. And he does this whole, uh, this whole thing. I want to throw out the idea that Christianity is a material religion. In that the experience we have with Christ affects our material lives. It affects our everyday. Any sort of, of spirituality, any sort of faith, any sort of Christianity that does not affect our ins and outs, ups and downs, every day of life is no Christianity at all. That's why the author of James can say in chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about the man's physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And James knew that people would reel against this. They would have a hard time with his thoughts. And so he goes on to, to uh, front load their critique. He says, some of you are going to say, you have faith and I have deeds. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. According to Jesus, according to James, Uh, an experience that we have internally with Christ that does not translate into our everyday lives is no faith. It's just this idea that we have that keeps us happy, that keeps us comfortable, that keeps us feeling secure. But God wants us to have a passionate and active faith, a faith that actually does something, that goes somewhere, that helps us experience life. Uh, Like I said, I went to Sonoma State, and a history professor my freshman year gave us extra credit if we could figure out the motto of the school and translate it. And I needed extra credit because uh, I slack off a lot. I used to slack off a lot. Uh, And so I went and looked it up, and it's the Latin phrase, lux mentis, lux orbis, which is translated light of the mind, light of the world. All respect to Sonoma State. I I love the, the campus, and I love the education I got, but the light of the mind without action will not change the world. So light of the mind, light of the world doesn't mean a whole lot. Light of the mind with action is the light of the world. 
And that's what I love about community, right? We're finishing up a series on community, and community is a key place that the rubber hits the road when it comes to our faith. Uh, community is that place where we begin to uh, express what's going on on the inside of us with people around us. Uh, I'll put it this way. Uh, I used to think I was great at basketball. Uh, I was pretty good at soccer, pretty good at volleyball, pretty good at baseball. And I thought, well, I'm probably really good at basketball too. Uh, And then I joined a basketball league when I was a little kid. And I sat the bench almost the entire season. I was bad, really, really bad. But I didn't know I was bad until I was around other people who could reveal the fact that I was not a good basketball player and could help me grow in my basketball playing ability. One of the great benefits of community is that it reveals to us who we are and it shapes who we're becoming. See, outside of other people reflecting back to us who we are and what we are, we can get a false perception. I think, therefore, I am. Uh, I thought that I was really kind and calm and, and fun and, and, and compassionate until I had to be around people. And then I realized, no, I'm actually not those things. It reveals to us who we are, and it shapes who we're becoming. And that's what I've loved about these last weeks, right? Joining a life group, meeting new people, serving together, partying together, exploring the realities of God. These things have the capacity to shape who we are becoming, to help us be more fully human, to be more fully the people that God created us to be. It happens in the context of community, and that's why we're talking about small groups. It's not about numbers. It's not about getting you to do something during the week. It's about experiencing God and experiencing transformation in the context of community. I want to wrap our series this morning by looking at another way that faith is expressed in Exodus 17. Uh, It's just a really uh, exciting story of the way God's people traditionally have expressed their faith, have lived it out. In Exodus 17, verse 8, The author says the Amalekites came and they attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now God has used a man named Moses up to this point to free a nation called Israel from the Egyptians. The Egyptians were cruel masters. They were cruel slave drivers. And God heard the cries of the Israelites of this nation and he used Moses to free the people. And so they they went out from Egypt and crossed over this sea called the Red Sea. And they were going to a land that God had promised them. He said, I'm going to give you this land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I'm going to give it to you uh, and it's going to be yours to possess. And land back then meant largely what land today means. It meant stability, security, safety, uh, food, shelter for, for your family. And so they were excited about this. For reasons we can't get into this morning, uh, the people doubted God. They began to question God as they were heading to this land. And God actually said, you know what? Until this entire adult population dies and all the bleach-haired kids grow up, you can't enter into this promised land. So they had to wander around in this place called the wilderness. And the wilderness had little food, little security, little safety, and little land for them to call their own. And that's where we pick up this story. See, in in Exodus 17, uh, they're getting ready to go into that promised land, and this other community, the Amalekites, come, and uh, they're related to the Israelites. Way back in their history, there are two brothers, and they split apart. They have a tear, and uh, the two nations don't get along. They don't like each other because of this family history. So all the way down, there's this tear, and the Amalekites come, and they decide they're going to attack the Israelites. And we find out that they actually attack them from behind, from their weakest point, from the point where they uh, think they can defeat them and absolutely annihilate the Israelites. Have you ever had that experience in life? 
uh, things are, are tough. You're trying to make it through, and, and all of a sudden, things start to turn around. Things start to get better. Things are looking up for you, and then all of a sudden, bam, something hits you from behind. You just didn't expect it, and you're left trying to figure out which way is up. Did anybody else see that moth just fly in front of me? That was amazing. And you're stuck in this place like, what do I do? Things were, were just starting to get better. The Israelites were just getting ready to go into the promised land, and now the Amalekites come from behind, and they start to destroy, and they start to attack them. A couple of weeks ago, our power went out. And uh, so Maria got some candles, and, and we lit a candle. And I was impressed uh, by a candle, because a candle's small, but a candle can light up the whole room. I was amazed that something so uh, so tiny could could help us to see, could shed light on our uh, our dinner, and could help us to enjoy the night. So the candle's small, but the candle gives off great light. I'm guessing everyone in here can see this candle. The other thing that struck me about this candle, though, is how fragile it is. You barely have to blow, and the candle goes out. But look what happens when you take the candle and you place it in a vase. All of a sudden, you can knock on the candle and it won't go out. You can, you can blow, you can huff and puff and, and try to blow the house down, but nothing. It won't, it won't go out. The candle is still lit because the vase protects the candle, right? The glass... Uh, blocks the wind. It blocks my hands. It keeps the candle lit. It keeps it burning. It keeps it going. And uh, I think our life is a lot like that. Uh, human life has the potential to be this amazing creative force. Uh, with your life, you have the capacity to uh, bring amazing light into your community, into your family, into the church. But at the same time, doesn't it seem like the smallest thing can just blow your light out? can knock your feet out from under you and just kind of leave you thinking, what am I supposed to do now? What good is it? Where, where is God? Where are you? Where is life? What about all the dreams I had and the plans I had? Something very small can knock our legs out from under us, can blow us out. And that's why God gives us community. One of the great gifts in community is that it's an insulator to protect us from wind. It's an insulator to protect us from attacks. In verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Verse 11, As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So Moses is up on this hill, and he's got a staff in his hand, and he's holding it up in the air. And there are a few reasons why he could be doing this. One is he's looking over the battle, and he could actually be directing the divisions of people. Uh, he, could be, he could have the staff in his hand, and he could be kind of telling them, you go attack now, and you go attack now. So he could be doing that. So when his hands go down, they don't know which way to go, and uh, they don't know how to attack. It could be that he's directing the people. It could be that he's praying. In the ancient world, people prayed in a number of different positions. Sometimes they laid straight down on their face with their arms out in front of them because they were experiencing the glory of God and the majesty of God, and they couldn't even lift their face up to God. Other times, people would raise their hands in the air when they prayed. 
to say, God, I'm giving you everything. All is yours. This is, this is yours. I am yours. So it could be that he was praying for the people. It could be that it was just a symbol of divine protection, right? As long as his hands were in the air, the people knew that God is with us, that God is protecting us, and that God will take victory. Uh, whatever it was, it could be a combination of the three. We don't know for sure, but whatever was happening here, we know that when his hands were in the air, the Israelites were winning, and when his hands dropped, they began to lose. Can you put yourself in Moses' situation for a few minutes? He's a leader of an entire nation. His job is to hear from God and to guide the people in a way that would direct him. His job is to keep his hands up in the air so that the people win the battle. But they're fighting all day long, and his hands begin to get tired. Moses is an old guy, and his hands are, are starting to come down. And as they go down, uh, his family, his friends, an entire nation begins to be defeated. And you got to know that they were going to destroy the entire nation, uh, annihilate them. No Israelites left. And so he's got this heavy, heavy weight on his shoulders. Again, do you ever find yourself there? Do you ever feel like the weight of the world, or at least the weight of your family, is on your shoulders? Like God has called you to, to care and to protect and to, to be there for your family, to be there for your friends, and man, the weight is just getting so heavy. You try to have your hands in the air, you try to hold it up, but, but the weight just begins to weigh you down. That's where Moses was at at this point. His arms are up, the Israelites win. His arms come down, they begin to die. They begin to get defeated. When Moses' hands grew tired, the people took a stone and they put it under him to sit on. And then Aaron and Hur held out his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that the hands remained steady until sunset. And Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. So these two guys, they take some rocks and they put them under him. And and one grabs one hand and one grabs the other hand. They say, you know, we're going to hold your hands up for the battle. You can't do it on your own, so we're going to do it for you. Sometimes God chooses to... Uh, miraculously intervene on our behalf when we need things. Sometimes God just does the divine, and we can't explain it besides anything but God. God is just doing something. He's doing a miracle. It's, it's only God. Uh, one chapter before this, the people were grumbling, and they were complaining, we have no food, we're going to die. God, why'd you bring us out here? And God pro- uh, provided this stuff called manna. Uh, drops of dew began to fall, and in the morning, when the people woke up, there were these um, flake-like, honey-tasting uh, things. They didn't even know what to call it, so they called it manna, which means what is it? They said, this is the what is it, the what is it of God. God's given us this, this what's up, this stuff. Uh, and God said, eat it. Take it and eat it. And for 40 years, God provided food for them through manna. Every day. Every day. It was just God. There was no explaining it. You can't explain coming outside and just having bread on the ground by anything other than God. But other times, God chooses to meet people's needs through us, through each other. So sometimes God does it miraculously. God just does this miracle. And other times, God does it through other people. Aaron and her grabbed his hands and they held them up in the air. I was listening to an author recently, and uh, the author was being interviewed and he told a story. He said there was a pastor and he was sitting uh, in his church one Sunday afternoon after church was over and everyone had left and he was reflecting on the morning. And one of the people from the congregation came running into him. This man came running in, and he was out of breath, and he was trying to catch his breath. He said, Pastor, I have horrible news. And the pastor said, what's going on? What is it? And so he's breathing. He said, just wait, wait. And uh, he says, Pastor, there's this family that I know. And the husband lost his job, and the wife doesn't have a job. And they're one day late on their rent, and the landlord's going to kick them out of their house. They're going to be homeless with with, with nowhere to go in this young family. 
And we got to do something. The church has to do something, Pastor. And the pastor said, you're right. We do have to do something. So they took up an offering. He said, we're going to take an offering and we're going to provide for this people. We'll pay their rent and we'll make sure that they, uh, they can make it. They can survive. They can stay in their house. And uh, the guy said, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so thankful. And the guy turned to walk out. And as he turned to walk out, the pastor said, hey, how do you know this family? And he turned back and he said, I'm the landlord. And he walked out. We get in trouble when we think, well, if God wanted to meet someone's need, he would just do it miraculously, right? If God wanted that person to have enough money to pay rent, he would give them the money. If he wanted them to have enough food, he would give them the food. If he wanted them to have clean drinking water, he would give them the drinking water to drink. We make a mistake when we, uh, we think, well, if God just wanted to do it, God would do it. Or when we begin to think, well, the church should meet that need, right? The church should meet the need of that person or that family or, or, or that community, Remember, Ron told us last week, we are the church, right? This group of people in here, we are the church. Sometimes God meets needs through us. And it's no less miraculous than when God meets needs through divine intervention. Sometimes there's no explaining it except for God. And we know that it has to be God, and we thank God, and we praise him. We say, that is amazing. That's a miracle. Other times, God looks at us and says, hey, help that person out. And I want to say that that's no less divine. That's no less God. That's no less his hand moving in people's lives. I think sometimes when we ask God, God, why aren't you meeting that person's need? God, would you just please go and would you meet that person's need? I wonder if God's looking at us and saying, why aren't you meeting that person's need? Why aren't you going? I've given you the resources. I've given you the time. I've given you the availability. Go, you meet that need. God does the miraculous two ways, through divine intervention and through us. And they're both miraculous. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. Make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for the hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Maybe we got ahead of ourselves a little bit this morning. Have you ever experienced God's provision in your life? Either through God doing something miraculous, or you can't explain it except that God just did a miracle, or have you experienced God's provision in your life from someone meeting a need that you had, someone serving you, someone caring for you? Have you experienced God meeting a need in your life? It was a common practice in the Old Testament uh, for people to build altars to remember the things that God had done. And so you'd be walking along a road and you'd see rocks piled up together and it would be an altar to remember who God was and what he did for the people. So you walk by and you say, okay, that was a place where I met God. And they'd have names, you know, God is here or God provides, all these different names. And, and the people would walk by and they'd say, that's where Moses met God. That's where Abraham met God. That's where our forefathers met God. That's where I met God. They'd have these altars to remember God. And they remember his faithfulness, his provision, his power. And we do the same thing today. We just don't call it an altar. We do it in the secular world and in the Christian world. In the secular world, do you ever wonder why you wear a wedding ring? Uh, do you wonder why uh, you take pictures on vacation? Or why you buy really ugly, stupid hats and t-shirts when you're on vacation? Right? Uh, I've been asking myself, why do I save my letterman's jacket? Am I planning on putting it on sometime soon? You know? It would now fit, probably. 
10 years after high school. So that's exciting. But, but why? Why do we keep these things? We keep them because they help us remember an experience we had, right? The pictures remind us of a vacation. The, the ridiculous t-shirt reminds us about that crazy cat t-shirt that we went to and, and, and how cool that, that really funny shirt is and how clever it is. And, you know, one tequila, two tequila, three tequila, four. Oh, that is so clever. You know, like, dude, we remember, oh my gosh, that was so funny. Um, it reminds us of a time in our lives. We do the same thing in the Christian world, right? That's why we celebrate communion every week. It's to remember the sacrifice of Christ to bring us to this place, to bring us to a place of faith. That's why we have a cross up on the stage, is to remember who Jesus is. That's why we gather together every week to remember, to experience, to explore. But we build altars every day. We just don't call them altars. So I want to ask again, do you remember a time when God met you? Because if you can't remember a time when God met you, then talking about serving other people and caring for other people is a moot point. We have to be served by God. We have to be served by others so that we can then flow that to serve others, to love others. I remember when Maddie was born, uh, our life group just provided meals for us for like three weeks. And so then when other people have kids who are born, the first thing we want to do is let's make a meal for them and let's provide for them. We were served, and so we want to serve other people. Uh, I remember I was going through a difficult time in life, and a buddy of mine, uh, my car was at his house. He just washed and detailed my whole car for me. I was served in that way, and so now I want to go and I want to serve someone else. Uh, probably not by washing and detailing their car, but something else, you know. Uh, there's a reason why my car wasn't washed and detailed. I'm not good at that kind of thing. Until you experience God, until you experience a community that is serving and loving and caring, you cannot serve and love and care the way God wants you to. Remember, faith starts in here, but then it is always expressed outward. Uh, it is a material religion in that uh, the experience we have internally does something in our everyday lives. In Matthew 10, verse 8, Jesus is sending out uh, his disciples so they can share the good news with the surrounding cities. They can talk about God. They can talk about God's restoring relationship with them. And he says in verse 7, uh, he says, Go out, preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Now freely give. Have you freely received this morning? Have you experienced God this morning? If you have, then the call is freely give. Have you been served by God doing something miraculous in your life? either through his divine hand or through someone coming and meeting a need for you. If you have, then go and serve. Jesus says, freely you receive, now freely give. You might be asking, what's this look like in my life? A few options for you. Uh, look for the needs of others. Begin to ask God, how can I meet that need? Not how can the church meet that need? Not God, would you miraculously do something otherworldly to meet that need? God, how can I meet that need? Uh, if you haven't joined a life group yet, join a life group. And here's why I say that. Uh, you can't meet the needs of people if you don't know the needs of people. And you can't know the needs of people unless you know people. And the best way to know people is to join a life group with them, to share life with them. So join a life group, get to know people, look for needs, and, and then meet them. Uh, we're starting up our life group launch this 
week. Tomorrow starts our first round of life groups, and it's really exciting. Our goal, what we've been praying for, is that at least 80% of the people that come to church on a Sunday morning would join a life group. Uh, we're over that at this point, so praise God for that. I'm not telling you this to try to hit some goal or hit some target. I'm telling you because it's good for you. If you've been sitting here for the last four weeks thinking, okay, I know, you've told me all about it, I don't want to hear it anymore, God wants you to experience him in community. Maybe it's not a life group, but find some community. And I want to say that life groups are a key place to do that. So you have a Growing Together brochure in your program. Pull it out, look at it, find the group that's right for you, and then uh, on your connection card, under the place where it says, I want to apply today's sermon by, you can just put in there, um, joining life group number blank. Under the life group name, there's a number. So that's one way you can do it. Another great way to apply the message uh, is to go on the Mexico missions trip that's coming up. Uh, Towards the end of the school year, in May, we're taking a team, and they're actually doing two different things. One group is working at an orphanage, and one group is building a house. Uh, There's still some space, uh, which is really exciting. I think we have space for like 60 people, 50 or 60 people on this trip. Uh, But space is filling up. So think about maybe joining that trip. At 1245, after second service today, we're going to have an info meeting about Mexico. So uh, it's just across the hall in the secondary auditorium. So you could go home and then come back at 1245. There will be some food there, and I'll tell you all about the trip. If you can't make it today, um, under the part on your connection card that says, I want to apply today's sermon by you can just put getting more information about the Mexico missions trip. Check that, and we'll get you some information. Uh, look for ways to serve in the community. One of the great things we're doing in our life groups now is uh, every life group is doing some sort of service activity in the community, looking for a way to meet needs, looking for a way to serve. So do that with them, but also do it on your own. Look for a way to serve people. Like I said earlier, though, uh, Jesus says, freely you have received, now freely give. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced God in an intimate way, in a passionate way, in a way that you would say, my life has been transformed by this experience I'm having with God, uh, the first step is to come into a relationship with him where you could say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that you're real. I know that you're true. And I know that you want to love me, to care for me, to walk with me through life and to guide me. If you've never experienced God like that, I'm going to pray and I want to give you a chance to come into a relationship with him. We talked about communion earlier. Uh, God made a way for us to know him when Jesus died on the cross and he raised again. And so the gift is there. The question is, will you take it and will you open it? Will you come into relationship with God? Because serving on its own is not what God calls us to. God calls us to be served, to be loved, to be transformed, and then to go out from that place and to freely give. So let's pray, uh, and then we'll continue our morning together. Lord, we do ask now that you would be reminding us of places where we have experienced you, where we have experienced the miraculous uh, in our lives, miraculous provision that we can't explain other than you just did it for us. Would you be reminding us of places where uh, other people have come and they have met needs in our lives, and that was your miraculous provision? Would you remind us of those so that we can say, freely I have received, now freely I want to go give? Would you bring each of us to people who we can serve, who we can care for, who we can love in tangible ways? Uh, Would the light that you've brought into our minds translate into action so that we really can be the light of the world? If you're here this morning as we continue to pray, if you've never come into a relationship with God, I want to give you a chance to do that now because it is the single greatest decision you could ever make. So as we continue to pray this morning, 
Uh, if you feel God stirring something in you, God calling you, I want you just to pray a simple prayer like this with me. You can say, Lord Jesus, I want to be in relationship with you. I believe that you died that I could come and know you. God, would you live in me? Would you transform me? Would you guide me on this journey? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.